Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 73 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Um, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you very much to Susie for last week's episode. Uh, such a nice person came on the show before on the live and joyful segments on Instagram. Um, a very the mindset that she has is something that I'd love to be able to follow and maybe I will one day that whole thing of joy and being an advocate for it is, is brilliant Like, and uh, hopefully I can get get more into that um, but it's tough to change your mindset obviously uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you would it's always very helpful um, this week I was mainly watching the Beatles anthology again and uh, I I watch it when I can uh, it's just funny seeing how young Paul McCartney and uh, Ringo and George are, are in that but it's a brilliant documentary and it's actually ties in very beautifully with our, with our episode today. So I'm going to introduce our guest. Uh, she is a documentary director, producer and cinematographer and her name is Rebecca Coxon. How are you, Rebecca? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Um, thank you very much for joining us on your Sunday. You're very uh, welcome. I'm happy to be here. I know you're uh, really busy at the moment, uh, so um, it was very much appreciated that you kind of come on and, and have a chat with us because I'm fascinated by what you do. Um, we'll start at the beginning, as always. Um, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Yeah, um, I, I struggle to talk about my upbringing as a as just an individual, actually, because I'm one of triplets, and um, we also have an older brother. So everything seems to revolve around kind of like that family unit. When I when I was thinking about this, answering this question, um, so I grew up um in Nottinghamshire um and we lived in a kind of uh the middle of a woodland in the middle of nowhere basically it took us ages to get to school um (laughs) so I always joke now that my parents have kind of been preparing for you know being isolated in a pandemic for 35 years because they've just made this little haven for themselves and don't really have many visitors um but that was kind of the opposite of you know I I have always been quite a sociable person and um kind of got out there as out of there as soon as I could and moved to London but um you know it was lovely um we it was full of adventure you know I always had my siblings to play with we were climbing trees we were building tree houses um we were very sporty um there's always been a, a strong element of competition in my family um we would we were swimming we were playing tennis netball everything and all quite academic as well um and yeah I I would say um we're quite a loving close family um and sort of yeah in in lots of ways quite normal and happy and in other ways quite um different and um unconventional um (laughs) yeah (laughs) so Um, so like I just wondering about the culture shock then from being somewhere where you say it was quite isolated and quiet and then you moved to London that must have been pretty intense yeah I think for me there's always been a bit of a contrast in my life because I we literally lived in my parents still live there like a 25 acre woodland with basically no neighbors and the nearest bus stop was an hour walk away and for my parents you know they've obviously cultivated that life for themselves and it's complete paradise to them but for me I just you know I loved being around people and um, being in teams and wanting to travel and explore things and be curious about the world and be in the thick of it um, but at the same time I had this kind of anxiety because I 
I'd never been on a bus by myself and I you know I was kind of always used to being in this unit of um triplethood mm. and so very keen to be away from that because you know we'd always be the triplets the cocks and triplets and I was like I'm my own unique person and I want to mm. you know spread my wings so I knew I wanted that but then I also had kind of no experience of that and so I found myself quite um I guess a little bit anxious but also quite confident in the right situation I think there was a bit of a, a mismatch at times yeah um so when when did you first become aware of mental health um so I think so I went to I went to a state school and then um my parents moved us to a private school and me and my sister went to an all-girls school and my my brothers went to an, uh, the all-boys school next door and as you can imagine in an all-girls school it was very it was a very academic high achieving school and that puts a lot of pressure on people um and I remember in the early years of starting there, you know, a girl died from anorexia really, really sadly. Um, there was a girl in my year who um, developed an eating disorder, a really serious one, and was hospitalised. And, you know, I went to visit her. And that was kind of around the time when I think I became aware of mental illness. And I think back then, mental health and mental illness were synonymous with each other. And they still, for some people are, you know, you say mental health and what they actually mean is mental illness, um, you know, mental ill health. Um, And we would have talks in assemblies about self-harm and things because, you know, around the age of sort of 12, 13, some of the girls in our year had had been self-harming in various ways. And that was kind of on my periphery. Um, but it probably wasn't until I got to university and started really struggling with my own mental health that I realized what mental health really meant mm. and that it could be, you know, it could, it's kind of a neutral term. It could be positive. It could be negative. Yeah. Um, and I really delved as a way of kind of coping with my own sort of struggles, really delved into the world of mental health and actually started writing for a mental health magazine. Oh, um, a kind of, a, yeah, as a way of coping with my own my own stuff it's very um kind of progressive i suppose at that at the the age you were in school to kind of have a a talk about self-harm and things like that um definitely never um was never approached when i was that that age you know in, in school over here um and we have talked about it quite a bit with regards to to schools and how they're uh dealing with it and how you know, they're trying to get people in to speak about it and things in certain schools, but in other schools, it doesn't seem to have been even touched on. And at that age, it's so, so important. Um, we had uh, somebody on who uh, had an eating disorder. And, you know, again, for, for me, with what I'm dealing with, it's not obviously not the same thing. So I don't know a huge bit about it. It's up to me to, to educate myself on it. But when when we were uh, to, uh, when I was talking to Ona who who came on, it was just it was a real eye opener the the depth of it. It's really when you don't know about something. We're talking about surface level. I knew about eating disorders. You know, like you know, you didn't want to eat food because you didn't want to get fat. That was the the ignorance that I had to it. And then when you when you go uh, deeper and deeper into it, it really needs to be uh, talked about in every school because at that age, it's when it really starts. You know. And, I don't want to go into the whole social media side of things, but that 
you know has an effect on things as well so it's uh, but yeah to to write about and and i have to mention actually because uh, i contacted Re- rebecca and we'll find out as the episode goes on why and um straight away the response was uh, to do with mental health and how um, you wanted to talk about mental health and we will talk a bit about it again but when i get those responses back it kind of it's very touching because I love when people say yes, because I want interesting people on the program or in the, the podcast. But, you know, when people respond are responding to the mental health side of things, it's hugely important for me, you know. Um, so uh, the first, so I, I'm right. I, it's becoming a thing on the podcast that my writing is very poor. I always thought I had really good writing. And then I realized when I go back to my notes, I cannot figure out what that says. But. Let's go with this. When did you realize that you wanted to be involved with with documentary um, film and TV uh, program making? Um, I would say I I was thinking probably around about journalism and media from probably the age of like 17, 18 when I was doing my A-levels. And it was clear to me that I I was I was doing well at English and drama, which I then decided to take um, to do at university. Um, and I've just always been quite curious, quite ambitious, quite good at writing um, and communicating. So it just felt like that kind of route was the obvious one for me. Um, it wasn't until my final year of university when somebody from the BBC came and did a talk um, about this scheme that they were running. Um, and I, I that and that wasn't even documentaries. That was just TV in general. That was just to get your foot in the door with the BBC. Um, which I applied to and eventually got on. Um, and then when I got to the BBC, I kind of, I remember them saying just, you should you should apply to be in the genre that you watch the most of. And I realised that documentaries were my jam. Like, mm. I like the odd drama here and there, but documentaries, were, I just love the idea of learning about the world um, while you're being entertained, yeah. I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I realised that that was what I was watching most of so I started working in I weirdly started working the history um the history part of the BBC which wasn't a natural fit for me but it was a way into documentaries and then I and then I slowly moved into documentaries from then on yeah and so I want to ask you about this because this is this is one of those things where I'm I'm, I'm very into film more than more than tv but when I watch tv it's it's usually documentary uh, you know a series but I'm always kind of slagged off by people um, because of the whole, uh, you know, saying, talking about cinematography, right? And people always think I'm being, you know, pretentious or something because I say cinematography. And I don't know why. I mean, that's it's, it's hugely important when it comes to film and, and TV. Like, you know, um, can you explain to people who may not know what a, a cinematographer does? Yeah, I mean, we, I actually don't use that term very often. And I feel like it is more of a film term, like a drama. I mean, we, we call our documentaries films. So just to not Mm. be confusing with that, but in terms of film and drama, a cinematographer is um, basically in charge of the image, what the, (laughs) the actual picture looks like. So, and that entails loads of things. Lighting is, is incredibly important. Um, framing you know um what's in focus what's not how the how the image actually looks so that the director can focus on you know directing the actors and and understanding what they want from that scene and how it's going to work in the edit um in documentaries 
that role kind of comes down to the producer director so I think in the last sort of 10 to 15 years because cameras have got smaller cheaper and easier to use and document and documentary budgets have got smaller as well um they've they used to have you know somebody who the camera person the director and maybe a producer as well and maybe an assistant researcher or whoever and that has all kind of been rolled into one role so um generally in most observational documentaries now occasionally if you have a presenter you might have a separate camera person and a director who can just focus on that um but generally so in, in my in, in the documentaries that i make the producer and director and cinematographer are one person so okay. aka me i'll i'll have a camera on my shoulder i'll be asking the questions i'll be producing the scene and i'll be <laughs> trying to keep on top of sound light <laughs> you know what we're having for lunch all that kind of yeah. stuff i might have i might have an assistant producer or a researcher to help me change lenses and things so when when uh, because uh, as you say all the roles are kind of into one when you were working on ambulance on BBC uh people uh, who may not have seen it uh it's it's obviously very raw at times because of the subject matter in general um and you see things maybe i suppose we're seeing more and more of it but you know you see things that you might normally see in your run of the mill tv shows when you're on uh, on scene um, how I, I am always fascinated by the idea of of the, the the camera person or director, whoever it is. How do you stay out of the way, the fly in the wall thing, but be you know respectful to the to, to the patient, be out of the way but capture the right shot? It seems like you're spinning plates, really. It yeah, that job more than ever. It is a balance. It's a challenge. They, <laughs> it's not for the faint heart of that job and having worked on similar documentaries um i was quite shocked by how much we had to do so so just to put it in context for you with, there were eight directors in that series producer directors i was one of them and um we were all put in our own ambulances for a shift so that they're 12 hour shifts but we would generally get there about an hour before and stay for a bit after so they're long days and you're on your own so you are given um, a paramedic crew you're put in the back of an ambulance and you have all your lenses on you your rucksack full of things your PPE because sometimes you might be going into quite different you know you might be going down onto you know into the tube um, and or just you know car crashes like all kinds of situations Um, so you have to have the same PPE that the paramedics do to an extent um, and you also have to control the mini rig inside the ambulance. So that's some sort of glorified GoPros, essentially, mm. in the back of the ambulance, so that when a patient comes in, um, you can record them without actually physically being there with your camera. But generally, we you're turning up to, you know, you have no idea what. Every sort of few hours, they're going to a different job. Um, and you have to go in with the paramedics you have to film the paramedics getting out of the of the of the ambulance um quicker you have to get out quicker than they do basically which is a task in itself with all the kit um and then walk into a stranger's house and very very quickly have a conversation with them that says look we're making this documentary for the bbc you might have heard of it it always helps when there's been previous series out before if it's a first series it's it can be a bit tricky but if people know this series they're generally more 
open to it and they might like it and know it already um you know and are you are you happy for me to film the work of the paramedics um treating you today um and it it's we have to make it very clear that that them consenting to that in the moment is not them consenting to it being broadcast it's just consenting for us to carry on filming and then they our team will have lots and lots of conversations with them before it gets anywhere near being edited or broadcast so we're really careful with that Um, and obviously nobody's in the right frame of mind to make a big decision like that Mm. if they're in pain or whatever so you go in you film that in terms of um capturing things without you know getting in the way of the paramedics important work or distressing anyone it is a balance and you know we have long lenses so you can keep a step back um you've kind of just got to judge it as you go and if people are happy for you to be around you know a lot of time i would say about 50 percent of people said yes and 50 percent mm. said no and um if they say no i just go back into the ambulance and sit yeah. there and, and wait and that's absolutely fine um yeah so it it's just you've got to you've got to be on your feet sometimes the people um are straight into the ambulance and what you have to do when you're making documentaries is not only cover um you know the shots that you need for the scene but also have things to edit it with so mm. things that we call cutaways um objects in people's houses yeah reactions of other members of the house you've got to be getting all those shots mm. and sometimes you've only got a few minutes to do it so it, it really is as you know it was a great way to sharpen up my skills mm. um for consenting people for capturing everything i need in a really short space of time and again it, you know it's one of those ones where you can't ask the paramedics to do something again you can't say oh i missed yeah. that <laughs> i missed you taking her temperature could you do it again yeah um so for me it was a real great challenge to and you know as i say has really honed my skills in the long run but it was exhausting <laughs> it, it sounds exhausting and what about the 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 human side of it then like because obviously you're you're dealing with a lot of pressure and you're you're having to do all that work but there's still the human side of someone being you know injured whether it's a car crash or whatever it might be like um is is it possible to switch that off while you get through the work I think the camera is a really good distancing tool for that. Okay. So I've filmed quite a lot of surgery in the past on, on programs like 24 hours and A&E. And I'm quite a squeamish person. Like <laughs> I have blood taken and I pass out. Like, and I obviously didn't tell them that in my job interview. <laughs> but what I found was that when you're watching it through the monitor of your camera, mm. it's quite a lot like watching it through with, you know, on TV. Okay. Um, and you can kind of place yourself not in it and kind of remove yourself a little bit, which is really helpful. Um, in terms of in terms of um, taking stuff home with you that's quite difficult, mm. I mean, I wouldn't suggest working on a program like Ambulance unless you've done quite a few years of difficult program making because yeah. you, don't, you just don't know what you're walking into. And majority of the stuff isn't as horrendous as you might imagine there's a lot of you know old people who've fallen over Mm. there's a lot of people who um you know need long-term care and it's not an emergency in the way that you might imagine but there are awful things and there are you know people dying um there's there's horrific horrific things that that, you know I've, i've been to and um i think we we got a lot of really good training about trauma um, before we started on that and we're always given a helpline to call if we are struggling or you know we have really good team members who can help with that and give us a break if we need um, but what I actually found was 
working on ambulance more than anything was that rather than going home feeling quite sad about the world and depressed um, and traumatized, I actually would go home and think, God, I'm so lucky that my family and me are healthy. We're happy. I'm not living in poverty. You know, I'm not living in neglectful situations like some of the people, you know, we came across and just a kind of appreciation and gratitude for life, actually, which I wasn't expecting when I when I started on it. That's a great it's a great um, way of coming out so, like so, from something like that and, and realizing those things. Um, just let me read out an ad real quick, Rebecca, and we'll get back into it. So let's get this one right today. Fusion Training Centre, Monksland Athlone, a place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Centre, train like a warrior. Obviously, it's back open now, folks. So, you know, sign up if you want to get fit and healthy and meet some nice people. It's good. Um, so th- how I came across uh, Rebecca was um, my favorite TV show, um, 24 Hours in Police Custody. I love it. I'm always telling people about it. And the one that um, Rebecca worked on was called The Nobody Murder. And it was a uh, it was fa- it was um, it was incredible, really. Um, and one of those ones that, uh, to be honest, um, I've watched all those every one of those uh, <laughs> episodes and it it really t- twisted and turned to places that I didn't think it was going to go. I thought it was an open and shut case after ten minutes. Could you just give just like a, a brief a brief synopsis of the episode, if you if you don't mind? Sure. So, um, just to say, I, I did work across the whole series, and I've done a few um, series in the past of it. Um, but this this episode was the the my first one that I've directed um, and, and taken through the edit. Um, so this episode, the no body murder. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, yeah. but essentially there is a murder investigation. Um, uh, an Eastern European man has gone missing and um, sort of is presumed dead because nobody's seen him for years. Um, and they suspect that he was in a, um, he, he'd, he'd sort of emigrated from um, Eastern Europe to come and find work um, in the fields um, and had sort of lived in, in shared housing accommodation and been sort of bullied. And it turns out later that um, he was potentially a victim of modern slavery. Mm. So the police uh, go on this manhunt, they arrest a few people, they try to find him and then um, something crazy happens. Mm. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, it's like I said, like you said, sorry, Rebecca, like we won't get in and, 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 and ruin the, uh, the the surprise and the twists and turns. But the thing about it, like you can see it, sorry, I should say, you can see it on all four and on Sky if you have those, uh, if you have that, um, you know, broadcaster uh, in your house. But the reason why I kind of find the, the 24 hours of police custody so incredible, um, sometimes there's these moments where, well, actually, in a lot of episodes, there's these moments where you're going through what the person has or have, hasn't done. The person is obviously arrested and in, and in the, um, the, the police uh, station. There's moments in interviews within the show where somebody might be very aggressive when they're being interviewed, when they're being taken to the station or whatever. And then there's these great kind of candid moments halfway through the episode where they're talking to the, the, the person who's being accused of the crime. And there's a calmness and stillness to it. And this person is a completely different, uh, uh, there's a completely different energy off them. Um, 
I, I don't know if you've been involved in any of those parts of those interviews, but I, I'm, I can't figure out how they get to that level of trust with the camera person or the, the person behind the camera, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, psychologically, it is a fascinating program to just see how humans behave um, and all kinds of backgrounds that these people come from. And, and um, you know, you see the victim side as well as the, the perpetrator side. Um, in terms of um, incel interviews, as we call them, when um, somebody's been arrested, they're in police custody. And as you say, they'll... they'll um, maybe speak to the police officers a little bit differently than when they speak to us. And I think the main reason for that is that um, we're not the police and we make that really clear. So although we're filming the police station and we work very closely with the police, the first thing we say to them when we introduce ourselves is, you know, we're separate from them. Um, And we also aren't allowed to talk about the crime. So um, we, we make that clear as well. And we just want to find out more about them and their lives. And I think often especially when people are in and out of the police station a lot, um, they haven't really ever had anyone just sit there and listen to them or ask them about themselves and say, you know, what, what was your, what was your childhood like? And, um, you know, how do you feel being here? You know, the police don't sit down, they're not social workers, they don't sit down and say that kind of stuff, even if they want to, you know, they're there to investigate a crime and get to the bottom of it and, and find justice. And so for us, I think, especially when, you know, if you've been in a police cell for 20 hours mm. and somebody says, you know, do you want to just have a chat? And we, we would never, we never force it, obviously. Yeah. Um, most people say no to that. Um, but for the ones that do, I think it really helps viewers to get an insight into yeah that that is a human being and and something Mm. awful has happened that you know they may or may not have done but they've there's another side to that story and so it's just basically giving them that opportunity which um yes some of them take and can be really quite quite insightful yeah like often for me that's the hook you know because of the fact that we you know they may have all built up a um kind of relationship with police where it's complete disdain for them at, at, at a point and they've been in and out of uh, police station or prison or whatever it might be but then that turn and you, like you say the psychological kind of aspect to it where that turn and you get to see them as as um talking about their lives talking about themselves where they're where they're more comfortable that they know what they're talking about you know they don't feel that they have to defend themselves it's that they're the fascinating parts for me you know um I just, I just think it's a credible program. There was there was a program that um again I'm not going to spoil it, but the 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 last episode of the current series, where it was focusing on a, a police officer, she was investigating a, 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 a man was assaulted by his well, we can say it's not allegedly now actually, but we just say she's assaulted by his girlfriend, his partner, and it would it kind of took it kind of took a different route because it followed a lot more closely the police officer and how she reacted to the situation she found herself in and it was almost like a psychological uh look at her more than what was going on within the relationship obviously we saw that as well um i'm i'm wondering why the because they do focus on on, on they focus on police officers all the time I, uh, but this seemed to be more closely you know close to her what did you think of that episode yeah I mean I didn't work on that one um at all though my my partner did (laughs) (laughs) um so I, I sort of heard it from his point of view but um I think another sort of 
good thing about the series is that we do humanize the police in yeah. that way so i think we really strive to show how passionate they are sometimes so in that case in particular that officer she was um she was quite a new officer and she was she just threw everything into that case mm. and sometimes cases do have a personal um uh kind of reflection on on the officer so we ha- we have had cases where you know they've been investigating a rape and it's uh, you know something that's personal to them or their family or domestic abuse and you know it's just nice to show that there are there is kind of um yeah a, a mirroring there in terms of you know and also why police officers get into the job they mm. they've got into i think a lot of them really do feel so strongly about protecting people and um and justice so um yeah for that case in particular you know it it's unusual to see domestic abuse from that side i think she was she had obviously just um gotten to know the victim quite well over the years and and it had really really affected her um you know obviously with with what happened in the end you you know she's obviously taken that home and um and i think it's great to see you know we 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 really like to show that humans are uh, are people too (laughs) i think you know and they're because i think you know i grew up being being a little bit terrified of the police actually and when I'm you know even now when they're driving behind me I sort of get heart palpitations a little bit (laughs) and I never in a million years would have thought that I would be working on a police series Mm. to be honest it's just it's you know the police are kind of there to tell you off and you know but actually what they're there for is to protect everyone and they are there to help you when you need it um in cases like that if you find yourself in a domestic abuse situation the police can help you yeah um so yeah I love I love the ser- work on the series for that reason and and recruitment always goes up as well and you know in oh, really? uh, yeah when we when we show things like ambulance or or, or 24 hours of police custody um there's always a, an a increase in people who want to become paramedics or police officers which I think is great because obviously it's an underfunded under-resourced kind of profession so yeah and, and I think that the other side of it you know the ambulance uh, the people the medics and also you know just using that kind of last example i suppose you kind of you get to see the the human side the portrait of of why they got into it it wasn't like a you know on the police side of thing it wasn't a power trip wasn't anything to do that it was gen, gen genuinely trying to help people and uh she was incredible but it's it just it's a great uh show and I'm, I'm looking forward to it coming back um have you learned actually uh, uh j- during all these jobs um have you learned a lot about yourself mental health wise because you've already mentioned like you had some troubles um early on um have you been strengthened through these kind of things oh that's a good question um i think early on i've i was keen to i mean when i started in tv it was 2012 and we were just starting to talk about mental health and, and we're, we're in a completely different place now. Like people talk quite openly about it and they, there's far more awareness and understanding. But back then it was still kind of a, not a dirty word, but something that you just thought, you know, it's extreme. You know, mm. if you're talking about men, someone's mental health, they must have schizophrenia or yeah. bipolar or, you know, um, and now we know that that's not not the case um so early on i was quite keen to 
to, to make films about mental health that, that helped people to understand it more. And the first, the first film I made um, was about self-harm. It was for uh, BBC Radio One's um, YouTube channel. And it's just a short seven minute film. And I, I won a competition at, um, at Sheffield Doc Fest to, to get some money to make it. Um, and then have gone on actually to make films that have, so another film I made a, f- a couple of years ago, um, which is now on Amazon Prime, is about um, psychedelics. And for me, it ended up being a film about psychedelics. But for me, it was always a film about mental health, because, um, as you know, um, there's been a lot of research into um, magic mushrooms and psychedelic drugs to um, as a treatment to depression um, and other mental illness. And at that time, my brother was sort of in the worst throes of OCD and depression and I was really really worried about him and it was kind of it it was funny because I kind of would go to all these um talks about you know things to do with depression and I I went to one about psychedelic drugs um and and it potentially being a cure for um mental ill health and that kind of sparked my idea and connections to go and film the retreats in the Netherlands um but generally, all my films have, even if they're not directly about mental health, you know, I've I'm, I've just finished working on a panorama about rape. I've worked on things about domestic abuse, um, county lines and drug abuse. Like they they all have that kind of thread of mental health and you know vulnerability and um, challenges. For me, working on them, I just find them fascinating, and I love learning about that stuff. Um, in terms of my own mental health. I think when you first start working in those subject areas, you're inexperienced and you don't quite know whether it's going to affect you mentally or whether you're going to take any of that trauma on board. I got told that, you know, although, because I always think I'm not the one saving anyone's lives. I'm not the one going through any of this. You know, I how can I complain, you know, that it, it was really hard to watch something. Um, but actually, it even if you take on a fraction of what you're filming, or what you're privy to it's it's cumulative and you've just got to watch that it doesn't overflow your bucket <laughs> um so I've been aware of that and uh, yeah as the years have gone on and I've realized that you know it, it's not it, it it's not that bad <laughs> and actually I'm in a quite a privileged position um just being able to stand and watch it and I'm not looking at child abuse images every day like some of the police officers I film I'm not going to suicide calls like the paramedics yeah. are it's been fine. The only thing is I would say is that, and this is probably applies to everyone in their job is when you have something difficult going on in your personal life, it can be exacerbated in your Mm. professional life. So if I've got, if I'm struggling in terms of a relationship or a family member's ill or something, that's when the the sort of the darker aspects of my job can affect me. Yeah, that's fair enough. And and like you said, the, the thread, through all your work in mental health is, is affected by all those things for, for those people. Um, let's talk a bit about, the. you mentioned it there, the Mind Explorers, a psychedelic weekend. Um, it's fascinating, right? It's on YouTube, actually, if people want to check it out. And you see it's on Amazon uh, Prime yeah, as well. Prime so, so like, uh, for such, uh, what I was thinking straight away uh, with regards to yourself was, it's such a personal experience what these people are going through, these collective of of, of people uh who are taking the the it i used to i think i was calling psilocybin is it psilocybin 
Psilocybin, yeah. Psilocybin, yeah. I knew it was getting the wrong way around. So they're taking this to for different reasons, for different reasons, and they all you, that's explored through the through through uh, the episode. How how was it for you to be in that room while all of this is is kind of going on around you? So um, first of all, I should say that in order there was a lot of negotiation and talks obviously they they didn't just say come on in (laughs) I had to um sort of build a relationship with the people who run the retreats and sort of get their trust that I was on their side and Mm. and and the reasons why I personally wanted to make this film and was passionate about the subject they'd never let anyone in to film before Mm. so they took a bit of a risk on me um and you know we just got on well Um, And then there was the additional sort of layer of having to speak to everyone who had already signed up to this retreat and paid money for it to then say, well, actually, how do you feel about there being a camera in the room and you being um, filmed for a documentary? And um, another part of the sort of access agreement in order for me to film and make a, a documentary that was a true reflection of the experience was I had to actually go on a experience myself. Okay. So the month before I filmed, so they run monthly these retreats um, in the Netherlands. So just, just to um, preface all this, magic mushrooms is obviously illegal in this country, but in the Netherlands um, it's, it's legal with a few sort of loopholes um you have to eat the mushrooms um the truffles that grow on the ground you're not allowed to eat the sprouting bodies of the of the fruit okay. um <laughs> blah 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 so anyway it what i was doing is completely legal where i was and obviously cleared um by the people i was working for um so i i went on a retreat and took a high dose of um psilocybin um and yeah it was wild <laughs> it was um I wrote I wrote a, a long article for the Huff Post about it um for me I I I thought it was, a, it was such a great opportunity to learn you know if, if I'm going to watch other people go through it I need to know what yeah. it's like in order to accurately portray it so I did that um and then yeah and then I had to speak to the people who were on the the following month's retreat and say how do you feel about this and about half of them were up for it and said, that's fine. Great. We want to raise the awareness about the subject. And half of them said, no, actually don't, don't want to be filmed. Mm-hmm. So actually the people that you see in the documentary are only half of the number of people who were there. Okay. So there's another half that I have edited out who <laughs> I haven't filmed. Um, but even so, you know, for some of them, it was their first time taking drugs of any kind or, or being intoxicated. You know, some of them didn't even drink caffeine. Wow. <laughs> Um, so to, to trust me to film them in that extremely vulnerable position. Mm. And, you know, I now know from experience that you, you just have no control over yourself. Like it's like experiencing all your emotions that you've ever had all at once. Mm. You know, your I was streaming tears oh, really? <laughs> and, um, it's just crazy. So, uh, yeah, I, I basically had to, had to build trust with all of those people. And, you know, I think, in some respects so when I was there it was just me filming Mm. um and I think a lot of people have in their head that when you say documentary or film crew there's going to be like 10 of you Mm. and there's going to be all these sort of big dominating big burly men and actually you know me as a literal fly on the wall just kind of in the corner on a long lens capturing those moments everyone was was pretty comfortable with that um and I as you'll see in the film like I I went to some of their houses beforehand and afterhand mm. afterwards just to see if there was any sort of um change um 
you know before and after the experience so so yeah it's um those moments like the before and after uh the after uh, the response afterwards um was the lady's name mary yeah yeah mary, mary seemed lovely was she irish she sounded irish sometimes yeah she was yeah she, I, I wasn't sure because like half the time she sounded irish and then the other half i was like i'm not sure she's irish but um she wasn't like it was it, her reaction to it was kind of interesting she wasn't bowled over by it maybe like the uh some of the others were now there was some who were uh who went into it had already done drugs or whatever it might be but she i just found her her response so kind of fascinating now she didn't she wasn't turned off by it completely or anything like that but it's it, the idea of she wasn't quite on board with the thing again but when you look at people uh again it was it was quite a wide range of ages too you know there was different ages in there uh, and mary would be kind of i suppose maybe the oldest one who was that was filmed anyway um for her to go over uh, and do those kind of things to see I think that's fascinating that that there's people still willing because you 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 think oh retreat in the Netherlands where we all go and take truffles you think there's going to be all twenty year olds over there just have the crack but it really wasn't that at all you know um is there any like I I, I was going to ask if you had done it and obviously you've, you've confirmed that you had done it um is there any do you think I should say rather than is there any do you think it's something that could be explored because it is being explored in the states under you know uh, supervision and it's very much in the vein of um, somebody going into a room taking a, a, a small ish dose I, I guess and has maybe their earphones with them or, or a book you know that kind of treatment do you think there's, that there's room over here for that kind of thing you know what I, I do I think um a small dose is quite a different experience to a high dose yeah. and I, I've done both. Um, and the set and setting is always going to be crucial. So, mm. you know, taking it in a party element, um, you know, it might enhance your fun or whatever, but it's not going to help your, you know, your mental illness if that's what you want it to. Um, so what they're experimenting with is the sort of the high doses in a sort of, um, clinical setting, um, as a benefit for people with depression, um, mm. Or severe mental illness I would say that it it's not for the faint-hearted and you know it, it can be traumatic mm. um my experience re- was quite profound in the sense that it really does put you kind of face to face with what it feels like to die mm. um what it feels like to for, to almost experience all your loved ones dying Okay. And and you kind of go through a roller coaster of feeling that, but then coming out the other side feeling like the most intense joy you can imagine. Mm. So I think it, it, the aim by the end is to sort of have this renewed gratitude for life and to not be scared of dying or whatever it is you're you're worried about. But I, and so for people who who are finding day to day living difficult because of the mental health and sort of need a lifeline in order to survive, I would absolutely recommend it, Mm. you know, as maybe as a last resort, but certainly as a tool that could be there for them. For for people who are unsure, I would just say, just be intentional with it and understand why you want to do it. Because, you know, there were people on my retreat who who struggled, you know, that it it can put you face to face with things that you had kind of blocked out. Mm. And, maybe and not in it's really hard to describe because not necessarily in a kind of reliving your trauma way but just getting to the heart of what really 
matters to you and all the existential questions that you might not be thinking about on a day-to-day basis and some people would argue that they you're carrying them around with you anyway so you may as well bring them Mm. to the surface and deal with them but that process can be difficult as we know you know therapy is difficult it's not fun Mm, (laughs) it's going to get worse before it gets better yeah so for something like you know psychedelics it's a kind of catalyst for that potentially a fast track to those issues but you've got to do it at the right time and when you're mentally in a in a place to to understand that that's what you're gonna to have to do and if that means you're at complete rock bottom and there's nothing else and you know you can't function in life without it then that's that you know that is an option for you but for anyone who um just wants to do it out of curiosity i would just be ready for that yeah i i'm i think the, the article i read was in i think it was in a time magazine but it was the idea of microdosing does definitely appeal to me, you know, because like you say, if you really are feeling particularly down and like I've gone through a lot of therapy and I, you know, I don't need, I don't feel I'd need, I'd learn anything from it again, going back through it or whatever. But it's definitely something that if it became illegal over here and they were, you know, at least testing it out, it is something that I'd be interested in. Um, It'll be interesting to see how it comes along because it seems to be working in America and there seems to be some sort of a a push through on it. So it's good. Um. So what are you, I know you mentioned a couple of things earlier on, what are you working on at the moment then? So I've just um, finished majority of the filming for a um, a BBC panorama documentary about rape and the criminal justice process. So just trying to understand why uh, convictions for rape and and, um, sexual crimes are so low at the moment in the UK. Um, But as of last week, I've also just started on um, a new BBC series about birth. Um, so I'm kind of <laughs> imminently waiting for two births to happen. So hence why we said I might have to run off at any point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's been lovely to have a sort of transition from because I've worked on lots of difficult things, as I've said, domestic abuse, rape, you know, murder investigations. So to work on something a bit more lighthearted, <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lovely thing to be working on, isn't it? Like the uh, birth, you know, um, it's it's we we had been you know texting before this and just making sure that uh we could line it up properly with rebecca and and rebecca obviously has her phone next to her at the moment uh at any moment it could go and the uh the birthing may commence and obviously goes without saying that's more important than a podcast um so what what then do you like to do in your spare time to relax you know what um podcasts i was thinking about this or or are really I just I find a lot of sometimes working documentaries can be quite lonely and you're driving around a lot and you're kind of back and forth here and there and there have been times in my life when I just haven't spoken to my friends or family for Mm. a a while or not in any meaningful way and almost like the the podcast that I listen to it's like they've become my friends yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds a bit sad but I, I I love this age of podcasts because I think there's literally something out there for everyone yeah. like you can if you have a niche interest there is a podcast about it and it's like having those meaningful conversations um you know every week with people you're familiar with who like the same things as you um so I love I love a podcast and I love driving and walking listening to them um I I I like gardening and oh. <laughs> I just bought some more houseplants I'm trying to think of things that are quite meditative um well, I love gardening re- is isn't it yeah, yeah yeah it is I want to get more into it um 
I can yeah. I ask you a question about um because uh, obviously you're on holiday, you got to get a little, little bit of a break for yourself. I'm I don't know why I had this. This is one of those things that I've never been able. I've never done. I've never had the the opportunity. There was a bath outside on a was it on a decking kind of wasn't it? I don't know why, right? But I've always wanted to have a bath outside. I've no, I have you, you, because I saw it was being you. I don't know if you put up a photo or a video, but you were actually drawing the bath. So, yeah, why? Like that must. Be, I don't know why that to me appeals so much to have a bath outside. You know what? I've got friends who bought hot tubs recently, and I'm like, no, a bath, bath. is is the one because hot tubs, the water kind of stays there, and gets a bit stale, and I don't know. It's just, but a giant outdoor copper bath. Oh. It's just a dream. I mean, yeah. it, t- it took a while to fill, but I, I never, I felt like such a queen. It was, so it's my birthday last week and I, I, um, <laughs> my birthday, belatedly. and just sat in a giant bath and it was glorious. Uh, and not, to, not to forget the, um, what are they called? Slip and slide. Big slip oh yeah. Which is always, yeah, yeah. always fun. Doesn't matter what age you're actually, interestingly enough, last week I was on a bouncing castle and I haven't been on one of those for, oh God, you know, years and years, obviously. And you forget um, you know, talking about my my last guest and talking about joy, you forget how like those kind of experiences from when you were a kid can be so joyful. And um, Absolutely. you know, I was just bouncing around when my brother was on on there. But all my nieces and nephews are on there, and we're just jumping around and having a a great time. It's one of those things where I almost like uh, I don't know if you're like this actually, but I always almost don't allow myself to enjoy certain things. Um. I don't know why that is, you know, it's one of those things that I have to kind of work out myself, but it's like, sometimes I know I'm doing something that I should be enjoying, but I don't allow myself to enjoy it. Do you ever get that? Oh my God. All the time. (laughs) And I, so my free time is generally doing, is generally being productive with other things. So Hmm. on top of documentary making, I also, um, I write autobiographies for people and I, I um, write content for an app. And these are all things that I've kind of done on the sidelines. And, and when the pandemic happened, I didn't have my the documentary work kind of fizzled out for a little bit. And so there were great, mm. you know, backup plans. But I'm always, I'm never really just having fun or just yeah. trying to enjoy myself. And that slip and slide that I posted on Instagram the other day was one of those moments where you, you've yeah. got no choice but to be in the moment, to have fun. Um, and yeah, just take you back to being a child. Um, and funnily enough, I was listening to a podcast on my drive up here. Um, and it, it's, it's called We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon Doyle, who I adore. And she's the same. She struggles to have fun. Mm. She doesn't really know, you know, unless it's got an aim or is productive in some way. Um, she, she doesn't really identify with what fun is. And um, her sister on the podcast was saying that, there's what the opposite of um work no what is it the so there's work and there's rest but the opposite of um work isn't play sorry the opposite of play isn't work Mm. it's depression and basically this idea that we need play and Mm. joy in our lives not as an added bonus but in order to not be depressed yeah yeah (laughs) Um, and I really identify with that I think, uh, you know, because obviously you did a slip and slide and you had your friends there with you. And I was on the bounce castle and I had my nieces and nephews there, my family there. I want to be able to get that uh, level of joy 
when I'm on my own, if you know, or 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 uh, you know, at least maybe not even on my own, but like searching out something or doing something with one or two people that they don't have to drag it from me, that I can get it from that activity or or whatever I'm doing. Um, you know, I I I should say about the writing. That's one thing that I used to do, but it was so hard for me to get. It, it's one of those things that I couldn't get joy out of it. I even if I finished something I really liked, a short story or something. It's a bad example to use because writing is a difficult, difficult thing. But I still, I know that there's writers out there that can take great joy from what they've written and, you know, what they can present. And I'm not going to be going on a bouncy castle every day. So I have to find the joys in those kind of things. And um, it's one of those things that I keep keep uh, searching out. And I'm sure, look, sure, one day I'll find it. Like, I do... I do get joy from like listening to the Beatles and things like that, but I want it to be more uh, like outside and doing things. And, you know, anxiety holds me back a lot. I, I, I get that. Like, you know, but um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think music is definitely a fast track yeah. to getting that, but I, I know what you mean. And I think societally we, we struggle to allow ourselves to do things unless there is a end product or mm. there is something, you know, or, say unless you're good at it so we are kind of shamed out of doing things for the pure fun of them unless we're good at it so for example growing up I knew that my sister and my brother were better at art than me and painting and things so I just stopped doing it because Mm -hmm. I was like what's the point but for my birthday my boyfriend bought me like completely out of the blue I, I didn't ask for it but like um uh a scrapbook um and a painting set and he was like, just want you to just go for it, just, mm. just paint. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not very good. And he was like, that that doesn't matter. And yeah. so I just spent a few hours just painting the scene. But I still really struggled to detach the fact that I what I was doing was mm. never going to go anywhere. It was pointless, like, and just try and be in the moment and enjoy the actual act of it. You know, and being that kid again, just putting colors on a page and going for it. And I think what you realize in life is that everything has to kind of, you have to find joy in the process mm. and not just the end product because you'll always kind of be disappointed. And also this is your life. Yeah. And I think for you, yeah, finding stuff, whether it's going for a walk or reading a book that uplifts you or mm. watching TV, you know, those things can be um, joy for the sake of it without having an end product or, you know, you know, get wild swimming is really popular at the moment. Mm. I've got into it yeah. or, gardening or whatever it is or even literally playing with animals like petting a dog is one of those moments where I'm just completely in that zone and and obsessed with joy in that moment so and that is what as you're saying it's kind of what life is about isn't it oh for sure and that's very interesting way of putting it about the end product that's one thing that needs to be removed out of my thought process Rebecca it's been um an absolute joy and a pleasure talking to you I'm so happy you, you, you came on um it was really great uh could you stick with me for one more minute and I just get a photo after we after I close out the episode? That's all right. And then I'll, then I'll, I'll let you go and uh, sta- I'll sit by your phone. <laughs> um, but listen, th- I want to say thank you very much to John for all the, the tech support. He's my uh, second in command and I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to my mom, my dad, my granddad and Jordan Calvin for their work too. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you wouldn't mind. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, The Weekly Weekly, um, Spotify, Anchor, Apple, Google Podcasts are where you'll find us. Um, If you don't want to look at me and our guests, and why wouldn't you want to look at us? You can listen to us instead. Um, As always, every week, thanks very much to everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. And once again, um, Rebecca, thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you very much for having me. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.